Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. If you'd turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 15, this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 20. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. This is the Word of God. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah the prophet say about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. God and Father, we ask that you would give us now the blessing on the consideration of your word. We know that apart from the Spirit, we can't understand it, let alone do it, let alone have hearts that desire to do it. So we pray that you would work mightily among us by your Spirit now through the word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Messiah in the Old Testament is portrayed as a shepherd king. A shepherd king who is always present with God's people to provide for them, leading them to good pasture, to protect them, fending off wolves and predators, and to bring them into God's sheepfold. And all of that is a picture of what the Bible calls rest. It's also a picture of communion with God, of drawing near to God. All these things go together. Now you may wonder, why am I telling you this when we're dealing with a passage concerning defilement. Well, it's because this is what provides the backdrop to Jesus's class with the Pharisees here in our text. Now, you remember back in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees accused Jesus of allowing his disciples to break 
the Sabbath. And of course, Sabbath means rest. And we saw that behind all the backing and forthing in chapter 12 was the contest. Who provides true rest to God's people? Jesus or the Pharisees? Which is another way of asking, who is the true shepherd? Jesus or the Pharisees? And now in chapter 15, the Pharisees challenge Jesus again. And the underlying question is the other side of the same coin. Who is the true shepherd that leads God's people to draw near to God in true communion and fellowship with Him? That's what all this talk of defilement and hand-washing has to do with. You see, defilement, which is also what is called unclean in the Old Testament law, defilement or becoming unclean under the ritual law is a matter of being able to come near to God in worship, in fellowship, or not. Clean animals were the ones that could come near to God. They were the ones that you could use as offerings and sacrifices to God. And it was the same with people. If you became defiled, if you became uncleaned, you could not come into the temple and worship God, which is a picture of not being acceptable to God. And you also could not come into the fellowship of God's assembly, which meant which was a picture of not being able to fellowship with God's people. And to rectify that under the ritual law, you had to be ritually cleansed, which with a number of forms of uncleanness, you would deal with through a ritual washing. For example, if someone was rendered unclean through some kind of a bodily discharge, they had to wash their hands with water and become clean before they came in contact with others or came to worship God. And also the priest, when they were coming to serve God and perform their duties at the tabernacle, before they began their duties, before they entered into the grounds of the tabernacle, uh, they had to wash their hands and their feet before entering uh, the tabernacle. But there was no requirement for hand washing before eating. Now, is it a good idea to wash hands before eating? Yes, for sanitary reasons, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about normal cleanliness or sanitariness. We're talking about ritual cleanliness so that one is not ritually separated from God and his people. Now, how did the Pharisees then and the elders before them come to require this ritual hand-washing before eating inasmuch as God's law did not require it? Well, their thinking was is that if something is a good thing, then more of it must be a better thing. So in other words, the way they thought is, what if you accidentally have become unclean? What if you have become unclean and you don't know it? And so it's a good idea, just in case, to have a ritual washing before you eat. And remember, eating in the Bible is all about communion. Uh, in, initially, in Genesis, God breathes life into Adam. That's, how, that's where life comes from. It comes from God. But then God begins to give life or sustain life to mankind through the eating of food. In other words, this is how God is now going to walk, work to continue to give us life. 
And he all, but, but he builds these meals, special meals, for communion with him. That's what the whole Garden of Eden is about. That's what the Tree of Life is about. And it's not just communion with God, it's communion with one another. And that's why we instinctively see meals as a way of fellowship. I mean, even unbelievers instinctively know this. If you want to go out and have a good time with somebody, if you want to invite somebody over to have a good time with them, if you want to get to know them, if you want to enjoy them, well, what do you do? Almost always food is involved, right? Food and drink is involved. And we we all know about the family table. And even in our discombobulated uh, culture today, which is so busy, if there's any time when the whole family is ever drawn together, it's going to be around some meal. It's going to be Thanksgiving. It's going to be something like that. So we instinctively understand this. So eating has to do with communion. It has to do with communion with God. It has to do with communion with other people. And so they're saying, what if you've accidentally become unclean? So you need to have a ritual washing before you eat. And so it was the same kind of reasoning, though, that led the elders by the time of the first century and the Pharisees now, carrying on this tradition, to not eat with Gentiles. Same kind of reasonings. The law did not prohibit eating with Gentiles. But their thinking was, you might somehow accidentally become unclean. And they extended that refusal to eat with Gentiles to a refusal to eat with Jews who did not keep the traditions of the elders the same way they did. They called those Jews sinners. When you see sinners being used a lot of times in the gospel, it's not just referring to people in general. It's also talking about Jews in the first century who weren't walking according to the tradition of the elders uh, the way that they should have been. They were regarded as sinners. They were regarded basically in the same category as Gentiles. After all, an unclean Jew could make you accidentally unclean just as much as an unclean Gentile, right? So that was the thinking. So... When you come to eat, they would not eat with Gentiles. They would not eat with sinners, Jews who didn't follow these rituals. And then they would ritually wash to make sure that they were clean before they ate. Okay. So that was what the thinking was behind this particular tradition. Now, Peter describes the upshot of this whole tradition in Acts chapter 10 when God calls him to go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's not only a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion, but he's what is called in the Bible a God-fearer. He's a Gentile, but he's a believer. So you always have to remember that the difference in the Old Testament between Jew and Gentile was not between believer and unbeliever because there were Gentiles who were believers Uh, who would either travel to Israel or who even lived in Israel. The the fundamental difference between Jew and Gentile in the Old Testament, particularly between Jewish believer and Gentile believer, was between priestly believer and non-priestly believer. A Jewish believer was a priestly believer who took on the privilege of showing forth God's truth to the world, which at that time was almost kind of in a, in a geographic stage. It was kind of like a colonial Williamsburg. That's the, way, that's the way Israel was. It was a place that was supposed to show forth a particular kind of life. And because God's kingdom had not gone to all the world at that point, it's located in a particular ge- geography. That's why you can't 
sell the land. You can't alienate the land. It can only be owned by the priestly believers. If you live in Colonial Williamsburg, not anybody can own one of those homes. Only certain people can own it because it's about portraying a certain form of life. And if you're going to be part of that, you have to dress a certain way. You have to have your house look a certain way. There's all these special rules that apply to you. So that's what it meant to be a priestly believer in the Old Testament. So Gentile believers who lived in the land, they lived in the land, and yet they didn't have to keep all these special rules that applied to the priestly believers. So when Peter goes to preach to Cornelius, because God sends him there, he tells Cornelius and his household, he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner. Or to visit him. All right? Now, when he says it's unlawful, he's not talking about what God's law said. He's talking about what the traditions of the elders had come to interpret God's law to say and to apply God's law today. So all of that is the backdrop to this clash we see today between Jesus and the Pharisees. And remember, the real motivation for the Pharisees has nothing to do with honoring God and so forth. The real motivation, which we've already seen, is envy. It's envy toward Jesus. It is malice toward Jesus. And what they are saying is that they are the true shepherds. They are the ones who truly lead God's people to draw near to Him and to enjoy fellowship with Him and His people. And Jesus is a false shepherd. So, with that backdrop, let's see how this plays out in our text. And as we do so, always remember... That people are fundamentally the same whenever they live. People are fundamentally the same today as they were in the first century. So we are susceptible to the same spiritual problems the Pharisees had. Okay? Alright, so the first thing we need to see in our text is that Jesus is not speaking against the law here. He's not speaking against the ritual law. The contest here is not over the validity of the cleanness laws, but over the Pharisees' interpretation and application of the cleanness laws. In fact, Jesus is defending the law here. He's defending the law over against the traditions of the elders. So one way that we go off the rails here, and this is a way that we're like the Pharisees, we tend to get things wrong no matter how clearly God sets them forth. This is not a contest between Jesus' new inner religion of the New Testament versus the Pharisees' old outer religion of the Old Testament. That is not what's going on here. The fundamental contest here is God's Word versus man's Word. And that's why Jesus is standing with the law. He's protecting God's Word. He's advocating God's Word over against Man's word, which is what the traditions of the elders were. And so Jesus gives an example from another area of the law so he can make his point really clear. And Jesus doesn't go to the cleanness law. Jesus goes right to, to the center of the law. He goes to the Ten Commandments. And he wants to show them how adding to God's word ends up perverting it just as much as taking away from it. Adding to God's Word perverts God's Word just as much as taking away from it. And that's what he wants them to see. So he goes to the fifth commandment, which commands us to honor our father and mother, which is explained in the law 
to include providing and caring for your parents when they're elderly. Honor in the Bible is something that's tangible. It's something that can be seen. If you can't see it, it's not honor in the Bible. That's why the Bible says, rise up before the elderly. Stand up before the gray-haired man or or the woman. So if you're wanting to honor, you say, oh, I respect this person so much. I honor them. No, you don't, because you're still sitting down. Get up. Stand up. That's honor. You show it. Honor, etiquette, it is a language. It is a bodily language. It is a language which can be seen and understood, which communicates honor. And so he says, you honor your parents. That doesn't mean you say nice things about them. It does mean that, but it means more than that. It means you provide for them and you take care of them. You honor them when they are elderly, like they honored you when you're a little baby and couldn't do anything for yourself. And so the Ten Commandment, I mean the Fifth Commandment, means among other things that you provide for and care for your parents when they're elderly. So that's the Fifth Commandment. Then you have the Third Commandment, which says to not take the Lord's name in vain. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Now, vain or vanity in the Bible means empty. Okay, it basically means a mist, a smoke. There's nothing there. There's no substance. There's nothing you can grab hold of. It doesn't have any weightiness to it. And so you don't take the Lord's name in vain. You don't take the Lord's name as being some light thing, as being some empty thing that doesn't matter. And part of not taking the Lord's name in vain means that you don't take an oath before the Lord and then fail to fulfill it. Okay, to take an oath before the Lord and to fail to fulfill it is to take the Lord's name as a trivial thing. And that's something that was prohibited. All right. So the elders tradition had these two commandments coming into conflict with one another when it came to providing for one's elderly parents. The elders tradition held that one's oath, if you took an oath dedicating all of your property to the temple... You're dedicating all your property to God. And how spiritual can you get, right? All my property I give to God. You can understand where, where Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 when he's talking about love. If you give all your possessions to feed the poor. It is, it is perfectly uh, possible now as it was in the first century to serve God in a very proud way, which is to say not at all. And so that's what they're doing. They say if you... If you pledge an oath giving all your possessions to the temple, then you don't have to provide for your parents in their old age because you don't have anything, right? Because you're so spiritual. You're so spiritual. You're so on fire for the Lord. You've committed all your property to the Lord, so you have nothing to give to your parents. And so they said that the oath to God before God took precedence over... uh, The fifth commandment duty to provide for your parents. So they say third commandment takes precedent over the fifth commandment. And what's missing there is any consideration of the fact that an oath to God to violate one of his commands is itself taking the Lord's name in vain and therefore an invalid oath. How can you more regard the Lord's name lightly than to take an oath before the Lord to violate one of his commandments. Is it possible to take his name more lightly than that? 
which means you're already violating both commandments, right? But they completely miss that. That's what's missing there. And so the end result of that kind of thinking is that you're loving neither God nor your neighbor, which is the whole point and purpose of the law, as Jesus tells us. But this demonstrates, this demonstrates the kind of perfectly logical perversion you, you come to once you start down this path of being wiser than God, of perfecting His law for Him, because you know so much more than He does, and you're adding to His Word. G.K. Chesterton said, To be wrong and to be carefully wrong, that is the definition of decadence. So decadence doesn't always look like some drug addict or drunk laying in the gutter. The worst decadence of all looks very sophisticated and shiny and high and intellectual. As Chesterton said, it is to be wrong and to be carefully, precisely, and logically wrong. And that also means that in a certain context, you are compellingly wrong. Who can resist the force of your logic? The end of this path is that God is not loved. Your neighbor, i.e. your parents, are not loved. And you yourself become blind, having completely lost sight of what God's law is about. And yet you will see yourself as possessing special insight and special ability to lead God's people. And when all is said and done, you will have become blind leader of the blind. You will have become a blind person leading the blind. And that is exactly the kind of careful wrongfulness and blind leading of the blind that Jesus confronted in the first century. Just as Isaiah the prophet had confronted it back in the 8th century B.C. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All of those things go together, drawing near in a hypocritical way, drawing near with part of us, but not with the other. And, and the, the answer to this, I, we need to note this because we're so much like the Pharisees, the answer to this is not to draw near with your heart, but not with your lips. See, that's how we tend to fix that. That's, that's where you tend to get the real pietistic type movements from. Piety is a good thing. Pietism is not a good thing. And so we tend to think, oh, well, we don't want to be guilty of drawing near with our lips and not with our hearts. So we're going to figure out a way to draw near with our hearts and not with our lips which oftentimes ends up with meaning not drawing near at all. Drawing near with lips and not heart means not drawing near at all. But drawing near with hearts and not lips, which is really impossible, but if we, we're gonna, <laughs> we think it's possible. It really means not drawing near at all. And that it goes part and parcel together with vain worship, empty Worship, light worship, meaningless worship, worship that's not heavy, worship that doesn't matter, worship that doesn't change anything. And it also goes part and parcel with substituting our word for God's word in one way or another. 
Now, God is going to put a stop to all this through Jesus, the true shepherd. God is going to pull out of his ground, out of his field, all of these poisonous plants. He's going to pull them out of his pasture so his sheep are eating this poison no more. Jesus, like Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, is forming a new faithful Israel within old unfaithful Israel. And those who follow him will be led into true worship and fellowship of the Father. And those who don't are going to come under judgment. Obviously, they will come under judgment at the last day. But they're also going to come under historical judgment in the first century. And historical judgment coming on God's people was the context of Isaiah 29, which Jesus quotes. It's another little signal Jesus is sending to that generation that within this generation, this temple is going to be destroyed, this land is going to be laid waste, there is a historical judgment that God is bringing upon Israel. Now, in Isaiah's time, God said that he was going to bring a uh, judgment on Israel in the form of military invasion, which would be fulfilled when the Assyrians besieged Jerusalem in 701 B.C. With Jesus, he is saying that God is going to bring historical judgment in the form of a military assault and siege, which would be then fulfilled by the invasion of the Roman armies uh, and finally the conquest of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So it's the same kind of thing. There is a final judgment where everything is put to rights. But we, we make the mistake of thinking all of God's judgment waits till the final judgment. There are a lot of times where God intervenes in history. He intervenes to clean things up. He intervenes to bring judgment. And crisis, judgment, always has the effect in God's providence of separating the wheat from the chaff, the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goat, in advance of the final judgment. It's kind of like a precursor of the final judgment. So that is the backdrop, and Jesus is sending that signal. And they would not have missed this, that he is saying a military judgment, military conquest is coming on Jerusalem. Okay. So then Jesus teaches the people the truth here. He teaches the people the truth, and then he explains it in detail to the disciples. He gives the basic principle to the people, and then Peter asks him for a detailed explanation, which Jesus then gives to the disciple. And basically what he says is this. Defilement is not a stomach issue. Defilement is a heart issue. Defilement is not a matter of what goes into one's mouth. It is a matter of what comes out of one's mouth, is what Jesus says. He said, here's the difference. What goes into your mouth goes into the stomach. And defilement's not a stomach issue. He said, what comes out of your mouth comes from the heart, not from the stomach. comes from the heart, and therefore, that is what defiles you. Defilement is a heart issue, not a stomach issue. You can get sick from what you eat, but not defiled. Okay? And this is exactly, really, what the cleanness laws were teaching. You see, we can't see things going in and out of our heart. We can't see that. We can see things going in and out of our stomach. So the cleanness laws, the ritual laws, use things that go in and out of the body 
to give us a picture and to teach us about things that go in and out of the heart and defile us. It uses stuff we can see that's concrete to teach us important lessons about things that we can't see. Right? So, Paul in Galatians analogizes uh, God's people in the Old Testament to being like a little child. How do you teach little children? You can't teach little children with things that are abstract and invisible. They, they don't get that. You have to use things that are concrete, things they can see, things that they can touch. And you, you use that to teach. And that's exactly what God is doing with his people in the Old Testament. So now that we understand the basics of this, let's make some applications. And let's remember, like I already said, people today, we are fundamentally the same as people in the first century. The sins they were prone to are the very same ones that we are prone to. And what Jesus was calling them to, he is also calling us to. And the first thing, the first application, is simply to draw near to God. This is what life is all about. You notice the centrality here. It's all about drawing near to God. And you can see this throughout the Bible. Psalm 24, which says, you know... um, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can dwell in his holy place? See, that's all the language of drawing near. Who can draw near to God? And what does it say? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now you see that's Hebrew parallelism there, stating two things the same way. What do clean hands stand for in the Old Testament? It stands for a pure heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The clean hands are a picture of the pure heart. Uh, James uses the same imagery in his epistle. He says to Christians, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see the parallelism. Clean your hands. What's he really talking about? Go out and wash your hands? No, he's saying, purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's his point. That's what all of this is about. It's about communion with God and communion with one another. It's about being acceptable to God, being able to come into his presence. This is what Hebrews tells us that the work of Jesus Christ is all about. He said, you could not go directly into the presence of God in the Old Testament. You could not do that. You'd, God would strike you down. Only you, you could come into the tabernacle. In fact, Gentiles were allowed to come in and present uh, sacrifices just like an Israelite. Uh, God specifies that. He says there's one law for the Jew and for the Gentile. The Gentile can come and present an offering to to God just like the Jew. And that's all summed up where he gives the basic rule toward the attitude toward strangers and aliens. He says to Israel, you will love them as yourself. So he makes it very clear there, your neighbor. And so it's all about drawing near to God, coming into His presence. Because of the work of Christ, it says in Hebrews, we may boldly go before the throne of grace. We may boldly go into the presence of God. The only person who could actually go into the presence of God in the Old Testament was the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, and only if he went in a certain way. That's the only one. And Hebrews tells us that what all of that was signifying was the, fact is that, uh, was the fact that the way into the holiest, the way into the actual presence of God was not yet open because Christ hasn't come. But Christ has come. So he says, go into God's presence. Draw near to God. Same thing that James says. Draw near to God and he will draw near 
to you. We always feel like the problem is, is that God won't draw near to us, right? Don't we subtly put things in those terms, at least in our feelings, that God won't draw near to us? He won't draw near to us. James says that's not the issue. This is not the issue. This is never the issue. Draw near to God. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. It is, we were created for this. We were created before we were created for anything else. We were created to know God, which means to commune with Him, to be in His presence, to walk in His presence. And, and you may wonder, well, then why do we have the whole world? Why do we have all these things that we have to do? Why do we have all these relationships with people? If we were just fundamentally made at the most deep level to know God and to walk with Him, to commune with Him. Why do we have all these other things to do to distract us? Well, because, you know, that's how you know somebody better. By doing things with them. By doing things that the Father tells you to do and then having to trust Him as you do them. Having to look to your Father. Tell me, does that not build a relationship? That's fundamental to a relationship. And so all the things that God calls us to do, central to all of it, is this walk with God, this knowledge of God, this communion with God, this drawing near to God all the time. And so we, we can't lose sight of it, that that is fundamental to all else. That's fundamental to us being able to commune and to fellowship with one another. Any kind of human relationship. Our relationship here in the church, any kind of relationship you have with a friend, relationships you have with unbelievers, relationships at work, difficult relationships, relationship between a husband and wife, between parents and children, all of these relationships fall apart if they're not based on the fundamental relationship of us to God, of being in communion constantly with Him through Jesus Christ. And we, we can't... We just can't get too spiritual. We can't get too advanced in our spiritual lives where we forget that. What you see when you look at the saints down through the centuries is the longer they've been Christians, and I don't mean just somehow be a Christian, the longer they've been walking with God, the more mature they become in the Christian faith, the more central and the more important to them this whole idea of communion with God becomes. The more devoted to it they become, the more of a priority it becomes. And you, it's not, well, you think, well, oh, yeah, because they're old and they're about to die. You start thinking about that stuff when you get old, you're about to die. <laughs> no, no. It's because they understand what life really is. They understand it more. They understand it more. And this is why... Uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, honor your creator in the days of your youth. It's not like it's more important when you're old or it's more important when you're young. It's just that when you are young, there's more things that Satan can deceive you with and that you can deceive yourself with. You can believe the illusion that somehow you're strong and invincible and independent and all this kind of stuff, and you don't need God as much, okay? And you have all these activities, you have all this energy, and so a lot of things to distract you. It's, it's not that those aren't bad things. Youth, energy, all this stuff, gumption, drive, this is all good stuff. God created it. God created it good. But don't let it be used 
so that you're missing out on what the center of life is. So Solomon says, honor your creator in the days of your youth. Okay, so that is central. Drawing near to God, communion with God. And that's the center of this passage in the words of Jesus here. The second thing we see that is very important that comes off of that center is a very high view of the word of God. The Pharisees believed that in adding to the written words of God, uh, well, let me say it this way. Part of the traditions of the elders was this. That in addition to the word of God given to Moses, Moses had also received oral instructions for its interpretation and application that had not been written down in the word of God. So you had this separate inspired oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation. This is what they said from teacher to teacher. That's on par with the written word of God. Now, That's not just an Old Testament theme, because that's been a feature in church history as well. In fact, that was a a feature of late medieval uh, Christianity in the West. It was a feature of the position of the Church of Rome at the time of the Reformation, that there was a separate oral tradition that the apostles had passed to their successors. Uh, And that was encapsulized in the traditions of the church, and it was just the mu- as much the Word of God as the written Word of God. So anytime you put something on par with the Word of God, you end up supplanting the Word of God. That's, that's what it does. And so that, that's why there was so much, uh, uh, one of the reasons why there was so much emphasis on showing direct lineage uh, from the Apostle Peter. But you see here something very different with Jesus. The Pharisees keep going to the traditions of the elders Jesus keeps going to the Word of God, the written Word of God. He keeps going back to the Word of God. What does it say? What does it mean? Now, Jesus is not saying that tradition uh, is a bad thing and and that it is to be thrown out altogether. Uh, Sometimes we see Jesus adhering to a tradition. It, It seems that at one point in the Gospels, Jesus went and attended participated in the Feast of Purim. Purim is the feast that was established in the book of Esther when God delivered them there. It was not something that was written uh, down uh, by Moses or or given by a prophet. It's a tradition that they established to celebrate the deliverance that God had brought to them. And so that's a good tradition. That's a good tradition. It's not something given directly from the mouth of God, but celebrating the new works of God as he does them, that is a good thing. That is a biblical thing. That's an example of a good tradition. Um, So the strength, but we have to remember this, the strength of tradition lies precisely in the extent to which it faithfully represents Scripture. That's the whole, that's what makes a good tradition. It takes something from Scripture and really gives it some uh, a beautiful effect and expression in real time in a particular culture. That's what makes a tradition good. The fact that it really is proceeding from Scripture and giving a voice to it. So the proper issue for us is not tradition versus no tradition. The proper issue is biblical tradition versus unbiblical tradition. When a tradition is biblical, it's a great asset. But if it's unbiblical, it is a great stumbling block. 
And you cannot answer the question of whether a tradition is biblical or unbiblical by looking to the tradition. Understand that? You cannot answer the question of whether a tradition is biblical or unbiblical by asking the tradition itself. It's always going to say that it is biblical. You have to go back to Scripture for that, okay? Now, we don't want to have the kind of position where we throw out all tradition. You get, you get two ditches, as always. You get one ditch that says, tradition is God. Do not question it. Just do it. And then you end up with uh, uh, situations like the, who's the main guy and the fiddler on the roof? The, I can't remember his name. The main, the main character. Because I had the big song, tradition, tradition, you know, the big tradition song. And he says, the tradition, you know, and he says, now you're going to ask me, why is this tradition so important? Why do we do this tradition? He says, I'll tell you. I don't know. <laughs> That's what you end up with. So, so <laughs> the other ditch, though, is to say tradition is the devil. Don't listen to it. And we come up with the idea that we're not going to have any tradition. Of course, anything we do, if we just worship together one time, the way we worshiped that time, no matter how spontaneous we tried to be, that would be the start of a tradition. All right? And furthermore, you would look up here, because I'm leading, you would say, well, this, this is his tradition. Well, you have to have your own tradition. How can you not have any tradition? You have to do something differently uh, it has to be totally your own and has to be different every time you do it. And so when we have that kind of idea, we completely cut ourselves off from history. We have to start with, from scratch with each person and each occasion. We're condemned to circle the same ground over and over and over again. And you can't build that way. You can't pour concrete that way. You can never advance. And the other thing is this. While that sounds really humble, it's the height of conceit. Because what I'm really saying is, I don't trust any of y'all's fallen minds out there. I don't trust anybody who's been in church history, Augustine and all those people. I don't trust any of them. What am I really saying? I trust me so much. I trust me so much. And that's the height of conceit. So we want to have a, a biblical picture of tradition. We want to use, uh, I mean, we have creeds. We have uh, confessions and so forth. And, we, and, and, and a lot of those things are biblical. We want to use them in a biblical way. But there is a way of respecting tradition that always continues to subject the tradition to the Word of God, right? Because if it is a biblical uh, uh, tradition, we're not going to be afraid of that, right? We're not going to be afraid to do that. And we can't answer those kind of questions by going back to the creed, back to the confession, we always have to go to the Word of God. Now, the third thing I want to point out by way of application is getting back to the central issue here of defilement. That's which leads us to set aside the Word of God, and that which leads us to, being draw, to drawing near to God in an empty way, which is to say, not at all. Now, Jesus, we get the fact that he's pointing to the heart here as opposed to the stomach. We get that. But... There's something deeper here going on, much deeper. Notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't say, he, he says what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. What comes out, 
of the mouth. That defiles a man. Now, whatever sin comes out of our mouths was already in our hearts, right? Right? Because the mouth speaks from the heart. So what we have here is a situation where the heart's already defiled. Sin's already there. That's what Jesus says. What's already in the heart? He says evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and envy and all of these things. See, that's in the heart. All right? So before anything comes out of the mouth, that's already in the heart, right? So the heart is already defiled. But Jesus says... What comes out of the mouth, that defiles. In other words, it seems like we have two stages of defilement here. There's one defilement by what is already in the heart. But there is a further defilement when sin is allowed to come out. And so we get this picture here that while sin proceeds in one direction, sin proceeds from the heart out, one direction, one way street, from the heart out. It doesn't go from out into the heart. Temptations may, influences may, but not evil itself, not sin itself. Sin, evil is in the heart, it proceeds out in one direction. But it seems that defilement is a two-way street. Defilement is a two-way street. We have, when we have sin in the heart, that is bad. But when we let it come out, that is worse. And it's not just worse by degree, it's worse as in terms of compound interest. Okay, which is something that C.S. Lewis said. He said, both evil and good increase by compound interest. And I think this is one of the things he's getting at. And so when we, when we have sin in the heart, that's bad. But when we allow it to come out, that is worse. And it's not just worse for whomever we have aimed it at. It is also worse for us who have aimed it. We victimize ourselves as well as our target. Our heart is changed for the worse. And so keeping our heart with all diligence, as Proverbs 4.23 instructs us to do, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it spring the issues of life. Keeping our heart with all diligence means guarding what comes out of our heart as well as what goes into it. Now on this point, let me note that Jesus is not saying that what goes into our heart heart can't defile us. He's saying what goes into the mouth cannot defile us because that goes into the stomach. It's passed on. By implication, what goes into the heart can defile us. Right? It can defile us. But we have to understand that the way it defiles us is by stirring up the evil that is already present. Right? Adultery doesn't come into your heart from outside. Murder doesn't come into your heart from outside. Right? Envy doesn't come into your heart from outside. Those things are in your heart. They can be awakened. They can be stirred up by what comes from outside. And that's what we would call a defilement coming from outside into the heart. It's not putting the adultery there. It's stirring up the adultery that's already there. That's why we do have to be careful about what comes into our heart, because it'll stir up what is already present there. But Jesus' emphasis here, note, his emphasis is on what comes out. What comes out of the heart, what comes out of the mouth. And it's like Jesus is saying to us, the best way to watch this whole thing, the best way to guard your heart with all diligence 
is to not sit there and navel gaze and to try to imagine what all's coming in, because you're going to get it wrong, you're never going to get it right, because our hearts are messed up. We can't self-analyze in that way, not effectively. He says, the best doorway to watch, if you want to know what's in your heart, if you want to know what's going on in your heart, the best door to watch is the exit door. Keep your eyes on the exit door. Keep your eyes on what comes out. Keep your eyes on what comes out of your mouth. The mouth is the closest thing to our hearts. If we're going to express sin that's in our heart, what's the quickest, fastest, most direct way? What we say. And we can do it. You know, we can do things, yes. But that's a little bit more complicated. That tends to take longer. The quickest revealer is the mouth. So he says, you watch that exit door. Because what's coming out is what? What was already in. What's coming out is what was already in. That shows you whether you have a pure heart. That shows you whether you biblically have clean hands. That shows you right there. And that is the best read on you drawing near to God, communing with Him, having fellowship with Him in the right way. So, what goes into the heart can defile us by stirring up the evil that's already there. But as Jesus is focusing on here and telling us, whatever comes out of the heart can defile us as well. Now, we need to ask this question. How, then, is our heart defiled when we let sin out? It's already defiled by having sin there. How is it defiled in a new way, in an additional way, when we let sin come out? Well, this is a deep area, and I think God only fully understands this. But at a minimum, we can say this. It will be a lot easier to let sin out the next time. It will be a lot easier to let sin out the next time. Or perhaps we should say, it will be a lot harder to keep it from coming out the next time. The more you use that exit door, the easier it swings on the hinges. The more you use that door, the easier it swings. And it can get to where you almost don't have a door. It's just open. It's just open. Okay? Compound interest, like C.S. Lewis said. Now, the good news, though, is this. This process also works in reverse. When we do what is good, regardless of what's in our heart, when we don't let it out, and we instead do what is good, it will be a lot easier to repeat that good in the future. Compound interest. Our heart will have been changed for the better. One of the ways that God works to change our hearts is, there's evil in our heart, it wants to come out, we sense it, we recognize it for what it is, and we do not let it out, which a lot of times that means shut your mouth. Just shut your mouth. Stop talking. Stop saying. And a lot of times it may be stop talking in your head. Stop talking and listen to God. Stop talking and start praying. Okay, Because if we say things in our head... You idiot, you fool, you moron, you, you know, okay. We're, we're saying it, it it's imprinted. We're, we're imprinting that. We don't even want to be saying it in our head, all right? That, that's the time you pray. That's the time you quote a Bible verse. That's when you lock shut the exit door. When we do that, even though the inside is bad, <clears throat> When we lock that exit door and we keep it from coming out, 
intentionally, out of faith, that changes our heart for the good. Does it change our heart all the way? No, it doesn't change it all the way in one step. But it changes our heart for the good nevertheless. Now, you may think, well, wait a minute. Isn't that hypocrisy? Having one thing in the heart and letting something else come out? Isn't that hypocrisy? No, that's not biblical hypocrisy. Having one thing in the heart and letting something else come out. Hypocrisy depends on why. Why do you have one thing in the heart and have something else coming out? Now, if you're doing that to manipulate someone, if you're doing that to gain some advantage over someone, if you're doing that to indebt somebody to you, that is hypocrisy. That's what the old Zorro in the mask of Zorro, when he's training the new Zorro, that's what he tells him. He's going to send him into this posh affair where he's got to pretend to be a gentleman, aristocrat, a person of stature. And the the, the young guy says, I don't know how to do that. He says, a gentleman is somebody who thinks one thing and says another. In other words, what he's saying is in that society, a gentleman is a hypocrite. A gentleman is a manipulator. A gentleman is somebody who uh, acts in such a way to gain advantage. A gentleman is someone who acts in such a way to indebt other people to them. This is all a bunch of power play. That is hypocrisy. But if the reason why we have one thing in the heart and have something else come out, if the reason is to keep from compounding the sin in our heart by refusing to let it out, that is holiness, not hypocrisy. It's a different H word. That's holiness. And that's the first step. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, this is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. And an apparent trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. That's what he's saying. We always get it back with compound interest. So that means our duty is there's evil in our heart. It's already there. When we sense it's there, job number one, don't let it out. Bolt the exit door. Barricade the exit door. Do whatever you have to do to barricade the exit door. Don't let it out. Don't let it compound the interest. All right? You want to start compounding the interest the other way. Bolt the door. Don't let it out. Okay? The next step is do good. Do good. Do something that is good. Do what is right. Say what is right. Do good. Now you're starting to compound interest the other way. Okay? This is what Paul is getting at in Romans when he says, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. The best defense is a good offense. If you're doing something good, you can't be doing something evil. You can't just sit there and not sin. You, you have to, you do good. Don't bolt the exit door, okay? And you, you let good come out, even though that's not what you're feeling inside. You act according to the good, 
All right? This begins to change our hearts. At another place, C.S. Lewis says, look, don't worry about so much whether you feel love for your neighbor. He says, just act as if you did. Do good to your neighbor. Because he said, then you will find yourself two people to whom you do good. And again, you're not trying to indebt them to yourselves. You're seeking their good. People that you do that toward, you will find yourself loving them more and more. If you, if you don't, you will find yourself not liking them and not loving them more and more. So there's a very deep theology we see here that goes on behind this clash between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the one who leads us into the presence of God. He is the one who protects us and provides for us. He is the one who teaches us clean hearts and pure hearts to enjoy fellowship with God. And this really is the basis of all life. It's not the basis of religious life. It's the basis of all life. And I commend these words to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.